be two weeks ago we went through Psalm 82. Now we're in Psalm 83. And oftentimes when you're reading the psalm, you're like, what's going on in these psalms? Is there a background to what the writer is writing? And I believe there is a background. I stand on the shoulders of a man named John Calvin and Spurgeon and Hingstenberg. Those are all commentaries that you can get online for free. And it seems to them and to me that, that there's a background of Psalm 83. And the background is 2 Chronicles 20. And if you remember, a really fun name to say for kids is Jehoshaphat, right? King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat, of course, was the fourth king in the line after Rehoboam and the kingdom split. So you remember David, Solomon, and then because of Solomon's sin, the, the kingdom was divided. Then you had Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa, and then Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's very, very close to the lineage of King David. He's a very godly man. His father was not. His father was an idolater, introduced a lot of idolatry in Judah. And here comes King Jehoshaphat cleaning house. He implements the worship to Yahweh. And all the surrounding nations decided to get together and they wanted to annihilate Jehoshaphat. You might have heard this story before. They wanted to surround him and, and destroy him. And if you look at verse 14 in 2 Chronicles 20, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Do you remember how we're going? This is the last psalm of Asaph in the Psalter. Remember how I keep telling you it doesn't have to be that man Asaph that David had. It was from the lineage of Asaph. This shows you once again a priest, a Levite, who is a Saphian. He must have been a great writer, a great singer. The, the Spirit comes upon him, and he tells Jehoshaphat, don't be afraid, the battle's not yours, the battle's God's. And under inspiration, he writes this psalm. This psalm could have been the very psalm that the warrior course was singing as they defeated all these enemies. They didn't really do anything but sing. It was incredible. We'll get to that. This is what we call an imprecatory psalm. They were praying imprecatory prayers, and they were desperate. But desperate times calls for desperate measures. So that's the background of this psalm. Jehoshaphat's a good king. He loves the Lord. The confederation of nations have surrounded him. They want to destroy him. And they cry out to the Lord. And this is the psalm. So hopefully you get that setting. You can kind of feel it as you read it. So before we hear this psalm preached, let's ask the Lord to teach us about Christ. This is ultimately written just not about Jesus, but written to Jesus. So ask, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to bless the preaching and the reading of Psalm 83. Father, we come before you today and we are thankful 
that you have been faithful to us this year. And Father, we have, some of our saints are with you right now. I pray, oh God, as I read Hebrews, that there's a cloud of witnesses looking down upon us, cheering us on, that we are in the new year, worshiping the Lord and Savior, that they're at the feet of right now. Oh God, please bless us. May we see your son through Psalm 83. May those that need a regenerated heart, we pray that you would do so. For those that need encouragement, please encourage them. Father, we pray that you would work through the preaching of your psalm. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Amnon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also join them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Caesarea and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O oh Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. And thus ends the reading of the very words of God. Probably one of the most famous physicians that ever lived was Hippocrates of Coos. If I said that date of right, I'm sure your Greek scholars may correct my date of pronunciation of Coos. But that's where the Hippocratic Oath comes from. Um, you know the Hippocratic Oath every physician takes, that they will do the best for the patient, no matter who they are, where they're from. They want to do the best for the patient. Well, in 400 B.C., um, Hippocrates wrote this book called Aphorisms, which is basically great sayings. And in that great sayings, he wrote, For extreme diseases... Extreme methods must be used. Erasmus, who we get the King James indirectly from at least, this is Greek text, he actually quotes Hippocrates in one of his books of sayings. Shakespeare will pick up that line for extreme cases, use extreme measures, and Hamlet, I won't 
tell you what he said because it was pretty morbid. But it's been quoted oftentimes, desperate times calls for desperate measures. You understand that. Psalm 83 is a desperate measure song. It's the nuclear button. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous because we know Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We've got to be careful with Psalm 83. I think too many people want to pray in precatory psalms. If you order your medium rare steak and it comes out medium well, you want to pray one of those, right? No, that's not what it's used for. We're too quick to pull to pull the trigger on praying in a precatory song. At the same time, desperate times calls for desperate measures. We don't take Psalm 83 and just cut it out of our Bible. No, it's in Scripture. And there are times that the church has prayed in precatory psalms. I think of 20 years ago in China when they tried to shut down Mr. Gong Xingliang from South China. They couldn't find him, so they found 25 of his members and they tortured them. Two of them ended up dying because they had to find this pastor to shut him up. I bet that church read Psalm 83 a little differently than we do, don't they? Or what about most recently, September 14, 2023? If you ever read about Africa, a little country called Mozambique right south of the Horn past Somalia, Kenya right across from Madagascar they're in the northeast province of Cabo Delgado IS which is the Islamic State went through the villages just this year September and they asked people are you Christian or Muslim they had to make a decision were they going to change their names, take a Muslim name, or were they going to keep their Christian name? They burnt women and children who decided to follow Christ, and then they shot men. I guarantee you Psalm 83 reads a little bit differently to them than it does to us. Desperate times calls for desperate measures. This psalm is the nuclear buddy. And it's very dangerous, but I'm not going to cut Psalm 83 out of the Scripture. And at the same time, I'm not preaching Acts 7, where they're killing Stephen. And remember what he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Both of those are in our Scriptures. Both of those need to be embraced because they're from the Holy Spirit. But you need to know when to use one and not to use one. And just remember that our Lord taught us to love our enemies. But at the same time, Jehoshaphat is trying to worship the Lord, trying to keep this nation to worship the Lord. And there's a federation of armies wanting to destroy him. And God gives him this psalm to pray. And if you're taking notes, there's four things I want to show you in the psalm. The first is God's silence clearly see that in there God's silence the second thing is we want to look at God's enemies the third thing we want to see is God's vengeance and the fourth thing we want to see is God's mercy God's silence God's enemies God's vengeance 
and God's mercy. As we look at God's silence, you may remember Martin Luther's wife, her name was Catherine. At one time, Catherine dressed in all black. She just saw Martin Luther walking around depressed on a regular basis. So she dressed up in all black. And, of course, Martin Luther said, hey, Catherine, is, did someone die? She goes, oh, yes, it's bad. Well, who died? God. Obviously, you're acting like it. This is the type of wife this man has that helped him. You want to think about Luther, read about Catherine, and you'll understand. She kept him on the straight and narrow so many times. But he moped around as if God was dead. Oftentimes when we read these Psalms, is God being silent? They're not asking if God is dead. They know he's alive. They know he has the power they're just asking men to do his work. When you read this psalm, a psalm, that's the title, that's the superscript, a song, a psalm on Asaph. The Midrash, which is the way the rabbis interpreted the Old Testament often, and some of the rabbis believe that verse 1 was actually a part of the title. Just so you know, the titles, in my opinion, and many others, they're inspired of God. And we believe because there wasn't any verses, that verse 1 is actually a part of the title. Which would make sense when you read it. A song, a psalm of Asaph, O God, do not keep silence, do not hold your peace, or be still, O God. It's a long title, but I'll leave this, I believe it's part of the title. And that's important because what Asaph, or the Asaphian psalmist, is telling us is this psalm is titled All asking God, he's, he's trusting that God is powerful, and he's asking God to work. Because Jehoshaphat knows that God can snap his fingers at any time, and all the enemies are destroyed. He writes about it. God does that sometimes. But have you noticed sometimes he does it? Do you remember on Calvary as Jesus Christ is being tried by sinful man? What does Peter tell us? Peter tells us, well, they, in, they hurled insults at him. He, when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the God who judges justly. Oh, he could have. Many times. What did he say? No man takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Many times God chooses not to act. Psalmist was saying, Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits. If you've read through the Psalms and you've been listening to our Psalm series now for what, five, six years, you keep seeing a theme. Wait. Because oftentimes we wait for God, but, but we have faith in His power. We know at any time He can snap His fingers and everything will change. But oftentimes He tells us to wait. To prove what? The genuineness of our faith. I could lie to you and tell you that when you're done listening to me preach Psalm 83, that when you pray, God is going to move mountains for you. I had a friend who served on the shepherding committee, the Savannah River Presbytery, 51 years old. He had struggled with liver disease for five years. He uh, inherited it from his grandmother liver cancer 
It wasn't drinking induced. It was just genetic. And I remember calling him. We would pray and pray and pray and pray. He finally got to the point where he went to the Mayo and they were going to give him a new liver until his cancer came back. He died at 51 years old. Great man. Loved the Lord. Served the church. Hold heart. And sometimes those are big pills to swallow when you pray and you ask the Lord to do something and he says, no. But I'm here to tell you that prayer will be answered one day. When he gets his new body, he will have a new liver. He will be alive. And the resurrection really makes all suffering legitimized if you think about it. You know, Jesus talks about this, that that we're going to be a suffering church. And we identify with Christ as we suffer. In the midst of all this, Jehoshaphat never questioned God's power. Never one time. And I pray that when you're done reading Psalm 83, you'll see that title and you'll say, you know what, God can work if he chooses to. Sometimes he chooses not to, sometimes he does. But it's not because his lack of power. It's because he knows what's best for you. And his ultimate goal is to get you to glory. Which brings us to the second part of the sermon, which is God's enemies. You ever read Matthew 25 and you see him separating the sheep and the goats and that really weird passage of Scripture where it says that you gave me water to drink. You served me. And the servants of the king are going, what? We didn't know you gave you a glass of water. We didn't know you helped you out at all. He says, whatever you did to the least of these brothers and sisters, you did to me. As you're living your life and you serve people, People need help. You give them a hug. You pray for them. You help them. You bring them a meal. You bring them a dish. You bake them something. You see them crying. You pray with them. You see someone on the side of the road. You don't know what's going on and you help them. You know what you're doing? You're being the hands and feet of Jesus. You're what Colossians says. You're filling up what is lacking, right? That weird passage in Colossians. What are you doing? Well, you're being the hands and feet of Jesus. His body has a zip code. You are here physically helping people. And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you've done to me. You know what the flip side of that is? Whenever you harm someone in the body of Christ, it's as if you harm God himself. He doesn't take it lightly. Look look at verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. I thought this was Jehoshaphat and the enemies of Judah. No, no, no. These are God's enemies. Ultimately, it's God whom they hate. But in your union with Christ, you have to understand God's enemies are your enemies. And your enemies are God's enemies. This is just the age-old kingdom battle, kingdom war from Genesis 3.15. From the beginning, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent would be at war. And it follows all the way through 2 Chronicles 20, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the New Testament, and even now, the kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And there's enmity. 
And Satan wants to destroy anything that has to do with the light. He wants to destroy everything. And he uses governments and wicked men, as we saw in Psalm 82. He uses wicked governments that don't do their job to try to destroy the kingdom of light. And look at verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Make no doubt about it. They, they hate the church. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. See, the kingdom of darkness knows if there's no Judah, there's no Jesus. Have you always noticed they're always trying to kill that firstborn son? They're always trying to wipe the Israelites out. It even seems in the book of Esther, probably the last book written next to Second Chronicles, it's like they're always trying to wipe the Redeemer out before he even comes. You keep seeing this over and over again. And in verse 5, they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. So this federation of governments come together, and there's ten different nations that will be named here. Ten different nations that will come together in a confederation, making a covenant with one thing in mind. Let's destroy God's people. Let's read through these names. The tents of Edom, and the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gabal, Amnon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitations of Tyre, Asher joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Does some of these names sound familiar? There should be very familiar names. Edom, remember? That's Jacob's brother. Grandson of Abraham, right? Jacob and Esau in the womb. Esau means Edom. Edom means red. This is his people. And the Ishmaelites, right? This is Abraham's firstborn son, Ishmael. Remember Father Abraham? Kids, you should know the song. If you haven't known it, by it's the, it's the best theological song in the history of the world. Father Abraham and many sons. That's who we're talking about. Ishmaelites. And Amalek, of course, that's Esau's grandson from Eliphaz. Moab and Amnon, those are Lot's sons. Also through the bloodline of Abraham. What are we seeing here? We're seeing that Abraham's bloodline has joined this confederation to destroy God's people. If you haven't heard this yet, bloodlines do not get you to heaven. Being born a Jew doesn't get you to heaven. Paul makes it very clear. It's the faith that Abraham had that justified him. Not his circumcision. It's the faith that Abraham has. All throughout Abraham's lineage, it's those who are the faith of the Redeemer that are the true Jews. You need to understand, God loved this visible nation. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant made Israel into a family. It was very family-oriented. The people who were not a part of Abraham's family became part of his family. 
And they had the covenant sign. No matter what nation you were from, they were amalgamated into Abraham's family, very family-oriented. And guess what? Just because you were part of that family didn't mean you were part of the invisible family because there was always a true church that truly believed. But the Mosaic Covenant made them into a nation. You had to have a king. But just because you were part of that nation didn't mean that you were part of the invisible nation, the, the, the church that's in glory, right? The, the, with the true king of kings ruling and reigning. This is teaching us that just because you have a covenant sign doesn't mean that you're a part of the invisible church. Children, this is really important. Your baptism does not guarantee your salvation. You must believe. You must embrace Christ. And parents, I think a lot of parents need to remember that too. Right? You bring your children to the means of grace as much as possible. You model them what it means to be a Christian. You teach them what it means to repent. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I had to ask forgiveness from Christ because I'm a sinner. You, you model that for your children. We see these nations with the bloodline of Abraham running right through them deciding, well, let's go attack the true church of God. They join forces with what? Look at verse 6. The Hagrites, Philistia, and Ashur. You see, God's people, they had the bloodline of Abraham running through them, joining forces with the world. Could you imagine that? Someone who was very much raised in a Protestant church with a covenant sign. You know, the Ishmaelites still continued that sign of circumcision. And what did they do? They wanted one foot in the world and one foot they thought they could be in the truth. This follows the lineage of Edom throughout, does it not? All the way to Herod. Why do you think they selected Herod? He was an Edomite, right? He was close enough. He still understood their traditions, but yet he was okay with the false gods of Rome. They had one foot in and one foot out. This is a sermon you could even talk about for the teenagers when they go to school. You can't serve God and serve the world. Some of the older people in this congregation will tell you, we wish we could put that in your brain because we tried it. It doesn't work. You can't serve both the world and God. You, you must choose you this day whom you serve. You have to choose Christ. But we see even the people related to Abraham trying to play both sides of the fence and they end up hating the people of God. That's where you end up when you keep toiling and teaming up with the world. And you see this. And what's interesting is Edom and the Ishmaelites are from the east. You see that Gabal is from the far north. And you see Philistia and Amalek is from the far south. And if you do a study on that, which is cool, if you really like to be a nerd like me, you'll realize, oh, he's talking about the far north, the south, and the east. And there were some people coming in boats on the Mediterranean. They're surrounding this, this nation. They're surrounding Jehoshaphat, and they're going to destroy them. And let me tell you how godly Jehoshaphat is. He never turns to Egypt for help. How many times have you read through the Old Testament? It seems all these kings want to make alliances with Egypt, and they make alliances with Assyria or Babylon. And so maybe they'll come help us. 
Jehoshaphat never looked for help for anywhere else other than Yahweh. He was a godly king. Now, at the end of his life, he made an alliance with Israel, then repented. But at this moment, at this time, he only looked to God. What a lesson we can learn not to make alliances with the world. Which brings us to the third part of this sermon where we see God's vengeance. And what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to weave throughout this psalm multiple occasions where God basically flexed his muscles. It would be likened to me saying that the Americans beat the Redcoats and the Nazis with muskets. You would go, that's great, but Travis, we didn't win World War II with muskets. We had better armory. I was like, you get the point. This is kind of what the psalmist is doing. He's weaving these stories in and out about when people are weak, God was strong. So he's crying out to God. Jehoshaphat's there. We're going to cry out to God and we're going to ask God to defeat our enemies, though we are weak. Look at verse 9. Do to them as you did to Midian. Remember, 300 is too many. Let's cut that number down a little bit, Gideon. And as to Caesarea, Jabin at the river Kishon, that's the story with Barak and Deborah. Though Barak's a great coward and many of the men were coward, Deborah stepped up and God blessed them and gave them the victory. Why? Because when you're weak, that's when God is strong. Are those who were destroyed at Endor who became dung for the ground, 11, make them like nobles of Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and uh, Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. And what happened? Well, they cut the heads off and gave those heads to Gideon. He's weaving these stories in and out of people who are weak, but yet God came to their rescue. The psalmist is telling us and reminding us that deliverance comes from God. When you look at 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, you see that Jehaziel, who is the descendant from Asaph, he said, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you. Where have you heard that before? Do you remember when Moses says, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today? Stand firm. Don't do anything. Watch what the Lord will do. And what does Jehoshaphat do? Well, according to verse 21 through 23, he got a choir. Well, he didn't get the ranger battalion, right? He didn't go get the Navy SEALs. He didn't bring in the heavy armory from Fort Stewart. Let's just bring them in. You know what he does? He says, let's get a choir. That's something I would do, right? <laughs> Travis, you're, you're not thinking straight. We need a choir. We need more people singing. He takes the choir to battle. Can you imagine this federation of armies laughing? What a joke. We're great warriors. And here you are bringing a choir? And they're singing songs. Maybe this song. God confuses the armies and they destroy each other. Because Moses says, step back, stand there, don't do anything, and watch what God will do. Like your salvation. What do you do for it? Nothing. 
you rest in Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus Christ stands there on the cross, and what does he say? You sit right there and watch what I'll do. You just trust me. See your deliverance come from me. Because this is how God works. God will get the glory. You sit there and watch what God does. And the psalmist will continue to, to sing, do to them as you do, as you did to them in Midian. Verse 13. Oh my God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountain ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. This psalmist understands the wrath of God and the terror of God. Remember when Paul says, remember the kindness and severity of God? Let's not forget the terror of God. And he's saying, God, we know your wrath. Would you pour it out on them? Would you rescue us? And you may say, would God do this to people? He did it to his own son. He poured out his wrath on his son. And God is holy, and it would have been sinful for him not to when he who knew no sin became sin for us. When you understand, God does not take it well when you try to destroy his church, when you try to destroy his people. God does not take that well, and he will come to their rescue. We've seen God's silence. We've seen God's enemies. We've seen his vengeance. And now we're going to see his mercy. If you know the character of God, you know that he loves to show mercy. Matter of fact, Ezekiel will tell us that he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't take pleasure in destroying people. I want you to understand that. God would much rather you repent and rejoice in him to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. But because of sin... He will destroy. We can't just, as R.C. Sproul would say, defang God. Make it more palatable so, so he's easy to play with. No. He's the God of the universe. He loves to show mercy, but he will destroy if he has to. As a matter of fact, he does all this for his glory. Whether the wicked are destroyed or the wicked are saved, he will do it for his own glory and look at verse 16 and this is this so interesting in this imprecatory psalm here fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name O lord what it's almost if the psalmist understands that god just may rescue them by saving their oppressor you need to understand that when Stephen prayed, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do, Saul of Tarsus might have been the answer to that very prayer. The one that oppressed him and was okay with him being killed and murdered. Oftentimes, God will save those who are persecuting you. 
This is why we pray for our enemies and love them. You don't know. Maybe you've been the oppressor before and you're sitting here today going, God saved me from this. We don't know. I always tell people, you don't have that list. That's the list that the Lamb of God was slain before the foundation of the world that we don't know. That's why we share the gospel to all. We don't know. But your enemies could be on that list. And I'll be honest, don't be shocked when God saves one of your enemies. This is what God does. He takes your enemies and he saves them. But look at what he says in verse 17 and 18. It's almost as if, and I know some of you have prayed this before, if you don't save them, you got to remove them. Because I need your help. They're trying to destroy us, oh God. If you don't save them, remove them. Look at verse 17 and 18. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Do you see that God will not be robbed of his glory whether he gives mercy or whether he destroys? I know you've seen all those cartoons or picture cartoons of hell and Satan's in charge. That's not hell, my friends. God is in charge of hell. His wrath is there. And the people in hell will bend the knee that Jesus Christ is king. Remember when Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ is bestowed with that name above all names so that the name of Jesus Christ every tongue shall confess that he is Lord every knee shall bow in heaven and on the earth to the glory of God. Whether you hate Jesus or whether you embrace him as Lord and Savior you will all bend the knee. Everyone in the world will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. You either get a big hug as a son of his daughter. You'll rule and reign with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you'll be adopted in his family and you'll have that father, son, and daughter hug from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll embrace him. You'll see him destroy all your enemies. All wrongs be made right or you'll face his wrath. But either way, you will recognize that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. We don't say this because it's easy. Every preacher in this pulpit that has ever spoke about perishing in hell, we say that because you don't have to go. Jesus Christ has made a way. That wrath of God was satisfied on Calvary. And I implore and beg everyone, repent and trust in Christ. He has done the work for you. Satan wants Christians to fear. And you don't have to fear. You don't have to. Satan wants Christians to fear. And the reality is you don't have to because Jesus Christ has taken your sin from you. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you'll be with him forever. And Jehoshaphat is praying, either save him, God, the Asaphian writer. Either save them or let them bend the knee and know who you, who you are. Flex your muscles, but please take care of us. Which brings us to the conclusion. 
if you do any research on Psalm 83, a lot of people are preaching this wrongly now in the sense of they want to use it for modern day issues. They want to say, ooh, there's a confederation of nations striving to destroy that little nation of Israel now. This must be Psalm 83. This must be Gog and Magog. They're, they're writing this right now. They're like, we got to take it literally. I was like, well, well, literally, none of these nations exist anymore. How is this literal? But there is something that we can take from this text. There was a time a confederation of, of nations actually tried to destroy true Israel. Do you remember when Rome joined nations with Edom? You know Herod was an Edomite. Then they joined forces with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And all of them got together and surrounded true Israel, which is Jesus. And they killed him right there. Ultimately, Psalm 83 is about Jesus, because Jesus is true Israel. You know, the soldiers, what? They didn't realize they had put the king of kings to death. Gentile soldiers, might I add, to win. It went dark for three hours, and they were like, we just made the biggest mistakes of our lives. And fear. But the reality is, is they didn't understand this was the pre- foreordained plan of God as what Peter would say in Acts what you meant for evil God meant for good and because they put Jesus to death you and I now can know God as father you and I don't have to fear you and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt all of our enemies one day will be destroyed it may not be on this earth but you know one day God will destroy your enemies because they're his enemies we are in so union with him. And the resurrection proved that everything I said is right. Proves it all. It is the proof, the only proof you need. That everything in this scripture is true. And I pray that you'll read Psalm 83 different. You'll pray for our persecuted friends and brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world that read Psalm 83 a little differently than we did. But I want you to know that God does take seriously those who try to destroy his church. Let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of Psalm 83.